All right, I'm back here with Father David Nix. This is our second time we had mic problems. I think we have them fixed. Let us know in the comments. We're asking the question, what happened to the Jesuits? They were, I mean, the most awesome order of all time, and they've become associated with modernism, heresy, sloppiness, bad liturgy, basically everyone to kind of a joke now in the church. So I'm here today with Father Dave Nix. We're going to go at it again. Thanks for having me, Dr. Taylor. All right. Okay, so you. let's let's deal with the mics here, and we should say a prayer. Okay. In nomine Patris, Sefilius, Spiritu Sancti, Amen. Pater Noster, qui es in Shelley, Sanctificeto Nomen Tuum, Adveniat Regnum Tuum, Fiat Voluntas Tua, Secret in Shelo, et in Terra. Panem Nostrum, Quotidianum, da Nobis Odiae, et dimite Nobis Debita Nostra, Secret et Nos Dimitimus Debitoribus Nostris, Et ne nos inducas in tentationem, se libera nos amalo. Amen. Sante Petrus. Ora pro nobis. Nomine Patris, Fidei Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, here we are. We're, we're talking about Jesuits. Today is the feast of a doctor of the church, Jesuit. And we were having lunch today, and we were talking about what happened to the Jesuits. What, Spanish Catholicism, obedience, positivism, and basically everything else that's a hot topic in the church right now. So in my view, the Jesuits is, it's a little, probably people probably, can people hear me? How are we looking on the uh, comments there? Um, sorry, everybody. I, I bring spiritual attack wherever I go. I know it. I know it. Go ahead. So, you know, we were just talking to Taylor about how in the, in the 16th century, something like 100,000 men wanted to join the Jesuits precisely because of the difficult mission of the possibility of martyrdom, the possibility of um, never seeing your family again, and countless men signed up to join the Jesuits back then. And my view is people probably look at the title of this YouTube and say, Dr. Marshall and Father Nix are just going to rip on the Jesuits. But I have a, an unusual view. My view is just as the Jesuits did everything better before the council, so also they did heresy better after the council. Um, and so I think the first thing we have to talk about is how they really, at least in my opinion, were the greatest religious order. Um, and why do I have any authority to talk about? I mean, it was your idea to talk about this today, but I went to um, Regis High School in Denver, went to Boston. I graduated Boston College, one of the foremost Jesuit universities on the East Coast, second only to, um, in, to Georgetown, at least in the eyes of the world, the flesh and the devil, which means very little to me anymore. But the world cares about these things. And then most of my spiritual directors in seminary were also Jesuits. So in some sense, I've had eight years of Jesuit education. Yeah. Or sorry, eight years plus another four in, in seminary. Yeah. So they're on my mind a lot. I think of the Jesuits, and I'm highly formed by the Jesuits. I mean, if I could choose for my sons the best Platonic ideal of education, I would say I want like a 16th century Jesuit education for my sons because it's it embraces everything that is heroic and masculine and strong and sacrificial. Yes. And now, though, you know, we do have the option to send our sons to Jesuit school, but there's no way my sons are going to the Jesuit school. And so that's, that's today's topic is what happened to the Jesuits? And are the Jesuits to blame for everything? Um, because there's a lot of big names before and after Vatican II with S.J., that's right. On the end, we including right now. We, we mentioned, yeah, we mentioned Taylor de Chardin, who was doing a lot yep. of stupid stuff even before the council. But I like where we were going. Maybe if a couple people out there could say a St. Michael prayer, just so we keep our tech going. <laughs> yeah, <I know. laughs> but we had a great discussion at lunch about 
about the, the Jesuits notion of obedience. I know a bunch of people are already listening. Hopefully you still have yep. a few people listening, but we'll just recap that real quick. If that works that, you know, we were talking about how, um, after 800 years of battling the Muslims, militaristic Catholic societies popped up in Spain with a real positivistic sense of obedience. And this was this famous line we talked about before we got cut off on the tech that this is paraphrased, but St. Ignatius says something like, if what you think is white and the church says is black, it's black. Now, I would, I would make the argument that works really well to have that sense of obedience as long as the people in charge have the faith. As long yes. as they're keeping the faith. Um, and then the other thing that, that we talked about at lunch was, was it a safe thing for the Pope to give the green light to the Jesuits to pray their divine office all alone? Or did that lead to an individualistic society? Yeah. And you think about, I think people today would say, well, praying the divine office, what people know as the liturgy of hours by yourself is actually a pretty common practice now in the priesthood. Very common. But in the history of the church, it was the divine office is the prayer of the church. And it was done in community. You look at the desert fathers, they're, they're reciting the Psalms together. They're praying together, coming together seven to eight times a day praying and so to, to set the precedent of everyone can just do it on their own mm-hmm. you could say that that was the beginning of individualism in the clergy in 13th century orders like the franciscans and jesuits even with all their missionary activity at <clears> least <throat> in the 13th century my understanding is most of the hours they did in the divine office was done in community also so we're talking first millennium of christianity all the way through uh, 11th century to the 16th century, the divine office was usually in common. Yeah. And in the Jesuits also, I mean, I guess it was done before, but really pioneered the spoken office by yourself spoken. Mm-hmm. Whereas mm-hmm. if you were in the Benedictine tradition or oh, the Augustinian, versus son. it was all choral. Yeah. Yeah. It was a choral office, which is the intention of it all. It's, when you look at the divine office, it's obviously choral. So did you, I don't know if you believe the, uh, the words of that exorcism of Annalise, but one of the most yes. chilling lines in there is the demons say, we will get them through obedience. Now, in the history of the church, it's usually going to get the faithful through disobedience. Yes. Where what the demons say in the 1970s to Annalise is, we're going to get them through obedience. So what would be the most perfect setup than a militaristic obedience to clerics who lost the faith to cause the crisis in the church. Right. And this is where, it, as we were talking about before, before, um, before we got cut off, was where does the role of using common sense come in? Because a lot of people would look at people like you and me and say, well, if the church says it's black and Taylor Marshall and Dave Nix think it's white, then who are they to place themselves Yes. above the church and authority. And, and that's a good like question. That. I that's mean, question. everyone should ask that question. And, and I, and before we were cut off, I said, you know, w- traditional Catholics, whether lay or priest or bishop are not saying, Hey, we got this new take, this new idea on what it means to be Catholic or the sacraments. Hear us out on this. Okay. What we're saying is there's antiquity. Yeah. There is the tradition of how things were done. And the, in the example we used before was Henry the eighth, violated the historic, traditional, biblical teaching on holy matrimony. The Pope said, we are willing to die on this hill. And there were many Jesuit and non-Jesuit martyrs that went back to England and did die on that hill. Drawn and quartered. Canonized saints, popes. And then you have something like 
Amoris Laetitia where it's like, well, men and women who are in irregular unions, non-sacramental unions, or divorced and remarried can continue to receive the Eucharist and can even go to confession without those sins being absolved and have full communal sacramental life in the church. That, how does, isn't it an honest question for lay people and priests to say, how does that even possibly square with the battle that was, that was fought in the 1500s with Henry VIII and which founded an entirely new religion, the Church of England, the Anglican Church, which still has King Charles as the supreme governor of it right now. Why is asking that question heretical, schismatic, bad? And I think the the people on the other side would say, well, it's kind of like what Ignatius Loyola said. If the Pope says white is white or white is black, black is white, you do that. And, you know, you had a good point that you had 800 years in Spain of a military campaign against invading Islam. And that creates this command chain that must be held intact or you lose. Definitely. And that's probably part of the genius of Spanish Catholicism. Yes. And also a problem, and we talked about mm -hmm. Jesuits and Opus Dei, mm -hmm. and both both have been accused by traditionalists of having a positivistic view of obedience, of don't ask questions, just do whatever. And I, me, as a huge fan of the Jesuits, I would actually say that works in happier days of the church. But what would Saint Ignatius of Loyola say today about Amoris Laetitia? What would Saint Ignatius mm. of Loyola say? about the notion, if you're divorced and quote-unquote remarried, you can go to Holy Communion without confession or without an annulment and receive Holy Communion. What would St. Ignatius say about a Jesuit 500 years after him teaching? He would say, that's not Catholic. Yes. That doesn't fall in line with what the Church has taught. If right. what the Church has said, if what Christ has given to the Church, that marriage is, indo is indissoluble, and if one of my sons, a son of St. Ignatius, would ever teach that, that's not Catholicism. Yeah, it's anathema. It's anathema. Yeah. So that's where we have to say, is the authority at the service of the faith, or is the faith at the service of authority? And actually, this is a Spanish proverb. I didn't even think of mentioning this on the podcast today, but there's a Spanish proverb that says, obedience is the servant of the faith, not of obedience. Isn't that a great line? Obedience yes. is the servant of the faith, not of obedience. In other words... The authority of the Catholic Church is there to serve what Christ has given to the apostles, not to serve their newfangled ideas ever. Right. Because newfangled ideas is always heresy. And that's the great thing of, of today's um, Jesuit saint is he was born in the Netherlands in the 16th century, joined the Jesuits, and he fought Protestantism to convert all these people to become Catholics. And that's the thing is Ignatius wanted everyone to be Catholic, not just a card-carrying member of the Catholic Church who claims they're obedient to the local ordinary. He meant faithful to the articulated faith and morals of the Catholic Church as they've always been, not as something new. And that's what's so great about today's saint, who's a Jesuit, who's a doctor of the church, who said, no, 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 there can be no new doctrines. And yes. he knew Protestantism was evil because it was a new doctrine. So if we ever were to find this in the church, a brand new faith, Ignatius of Loyola would be the very first to say, it's not of God. It's not of God, yeah. Now, you wrote a really good, part of what prompted this this conversation we're having is, and by the way, Father Dave is here because um, we're hosting a viewing of the new film Cabrini, 
which is about St. Francis Cabrini, Mother Cabrini, who's the first canonized saint in America. And uh, so you're having a, a quick stop into Dallas, Fort yeah, Worth. Yeah, sorry, I can't see my friends and donors in Dallas yeah. except Taylor. Yeah, so. <laughs> we're, we're able to do that. A few people coming tonight. But yeah. Francis Xavier took her name after one of the founding Jesuits. Yeah, which is a great tie into all this. Um, so let, let's go to, we agree that such a powerhouse as the Society of Jesus from the 1500s at the founding of Ignatius Loyola, really all the way into the 1800s, you have amazing saints. It's in the 1900s where you start to see the glory fade. And as we said in the opening, a lot of people associate everything wrong with the Jesuits. Mm -hmm. Even I have joked about it. Um, and guess what I, we've kind of laughed about, oh, the Jesuits, you know, sure. but just as we can't really, you can't say that the one Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church is wicked or evil. Ultimately, you can't say that a order founded by a saint and extended by more saints and ratified by the papacy is evil. You have to kind of take the same argument that I do in infiltration is the church is good. There are wolves within that have infiltrated and we have to hold out the same hope for the Jesuits. Yeah. And I mean, I'm, I'm going to have some people in the comments not happy with this next line, but I would say the Franciscans and Dominicans today are just as heretical as the Jesuits. They're just less bold about it. Yes. So in some sense, I hats off to the Jesuits. <laughs> well, what did you say at lunch? The Jesuits do everything better. Yeah, the Jesuits have always done everything better than the than all the orders, including heresy. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. But but too much, too often. See, they're an easy. It's very easy to make them the scapegoats for the problems of modernism. You made the point mm -hmm. of Lunch Skilobex, who was yep. the heart, you know, the the beating heart of modernism in the '60s, was a Dominican. He's a Dominican. Um, and so we just have to realize that. That modernism is the problem, not the Jesuits. And, yeah. and so there's a little bit of part of, I mean, I'm still thankful to some of the good things I did learn from the Jesuits in high school, love of the poor, later Ignatian mental prayer. Uh, you know, those, so I, I admit I'm biased towards the Jesuits. I do think most of them are modernists. There's some great Jesuits I know. There's some great Franciscans I know. There's some great Dominicans I know. But to blame the Franciscans, it's a really the easy scapegoat. Sorry, to, to blame the Jesuits is a very easy scapegoat to say, no, 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 something else happened in the 60s nobody wants to talk about. Yeah. And there have been strong voices in the traditional movement from the Jesuits. That's right. Which a lot of people forget, but uh, even today there are some strong ones. That's right. Some of the older ones. And what's sad about the Jesuits is even non-traditional but conservative voices, like who's the one who founded Ignatius Press? Oh, um as the name escapes me right now, but yes. Yeah, he's not even a traditionalist, and he's been sidelined yes. by the Jesuits, a good Jesuit. And so this is very common. Yeah. You know, Malachi Martin, some people think he's crazy. I think he's, he's, um, I think he's a great person, at least to, to get the basics from of what happened to the Jesuits and, and in the church. And he's very clear um, that, that many of the best Jesuits left, not just the liberals, many yeah. of the best Jesuits left because they didn't have a place when they wanted to stay Catholic after Vatican II. Right. Yeah. Is there hope? Father Fessio. Father Fessio. Yeah. Joseph Fessio. Joseph Fessio. Priest. Is there hope for a restoration of the Jesuits? Or is it the kind of thing, we were talking about this at our men's Bible study the other night, is it the kind of thing where a true Pope would just completely suppress them again and then reset them? Or is there a hope that the Jesuits could be restored? What's your take on that? 
So if you look at the history of the Franciscans, there is always a reform based on poverty. There's, there's not debates on chastity. Right. There's not debates on obedience. Everyone knows that those have to be absolute. But there's always new formations, reformations among the Franciscans based on poverty. What's fascinating about the Jesuits is there's never been a reform of the Jesuits, and there's never been a really good copy of the Jesuits. Yeah. Like in the 80s, they said, okay, the Legionnaires of Christ, that's going to be what the Jesuits could be, what the Jesuits should be, what mm. the Jesuits would be. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but they were sort of Yikes. seen. They were sort of seen as the 1980s reboot of the Jesuits. Um, and then we saw what their founder was made of. Um, and so there's been a lot of groups that people thought would be the new Jesuits. And the funny thing is it's never really worked out that way. So the, the notion of rebooting the Jesuits, sort of like the Franciscans had been rebooted, we have 500 years to really say that that hasn't happened. So that's not, that's not a direct answer to your question but it sort of sets the basis for understanding how unique the Jesuits are um, as far as could they be reformed or do they have to be squashed? Mm -hmm. What do you think? I, 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 I think the Jesuits, are, of course, we need them. And uh, another interesting thing about the Jesuits is we never had a female branch. We haven't discussed right. that, mm -hmm. whereas most all the other orders do have a female branch. Uh, another problem that we discussed at lunch about the Jesuits is them seeking out advanced degrees yes. beyond philosophy and theology. And that inserts them into the academic machine, which was already pretty much secularized in the 1800s. So, you know, the very fact that they're now being trained outside the norms of pontifical academies and universities and seeking out degrees uh, in various fields like science, mm -hmm. you know, and, I don't know, you had Tehar doing anthropology and archaeology, no, I guess not archaeology, but kind of sketchy, and then taking his new expertise and importing it into theology. I think he's a great, uh, not a great, he's a big example of Jesuits gone wrong. Yeah. Taking this worldly knowledge and then trying to modernize Catholicism with it. I mean, he's, he's probably the pioneer of everything that went wrong with the Jesuits in the 1900s. Right. I never made the connection between excessive education and what he was mm -hmm. what he was promoting, but I think you're right. The Teilhard de Chardin, probably people were taken at the fascination of this as a novelty. Yes. And um, people, we really under, I, I've called him before the greatest heretic of the 20th century. Really? You I mean, think he's the biggest? I, I think he's the genesis at least because he even affected decent popes. We could call him like Pope John Paul II and Pope Benedict. I hate to admit it. Fans. Air, they they quote him in a positive sense and this guy was a new age freak yeah and so it's really disappointing um to see that, we should talk about his, him because I, I don't know if everyone in the audience knows about Teilhard de chardin you want to give everyone you know more well he was a jesuit he was educated he was very much interested in the anthropology and archaeological studies of like uh was it peking man which turned out to be a fake um, I'm thinking of the, all that, all that goes up converges. It was essentially a soteriology of Eastern religion. Yeah. All I mean, he, comes one. there was, there was two problems there. There was an Eastern mysticism and then there was also hardcore evolutionism, evolutionaryism. Okay, right. mm -hmm. So he was doing, he was getting involved in these excavations of humanoid skeletons, one of which turned out to be a total fraud. And so when you're looking at Eastern mysticism, and then you're looking at the origins of man as evolutionary. He had 
like this alpha and omega, alpha the omega, omega yep. point where all of matter, physical matter is sort of, there's like a big bang and then there's this evolution of matter. And then there's this sort of climax that happens when God enters into matter, the mm -hmm. incarnation of Christ mm -hmm. through our lady, which is a Catholic concept. Yep. He's peppering it with Catholicism. Exactly. Um, so you kind of have this sort of, um, instead of there being like logos at the beginning and then a fall, it was almost sort of like the seeds of logos scattered. I, I might, I might be getting this a little bit wrong, but, but it's kind of the the seeds of logos scattered throughout the universe. And over time, it's like, they're all converging and That's coming right. and coming and coming and coming. And that was going to be the Omega point where you sort of have this convergence and you hear them talk about the cosmic Christ and yes, and that and it's an eschatology that it doesn't want to be humanistic, but it ends up being very humanistic, and and it blurs the line between the natural and the supernatural, so that you you lean heavily towards pantheism, and that's kind of the Eastern religion. That's right. Element, and so it's taking all these ideas, and from a worldly point of view, you go, "Wow, this is really cool." Yeah. You know, you've got evolution, you've got Star Trek, you've got Eastern <laughs> mysticism, you've got everything that's stylish Yeah, in the late 1900s. He was at the forefront of that. And yeah, it's sad. John Paul II, Bennett XVI, yeah. huge fans of that. Um, and you and could it, probably take that to say, this is the enculturation that Francis Xavier, like, you know, when Francis Xavier first went to Spain, he wasn't in the cassock. When he went back, he put on um, some regal Japanese wear introduce the calendar to them. And it, it was actually a huge success for him to bring the gospel in there. So if you study the history of the Jesuits, you might be able to say, okay, well, as the world's opening up to learn all these other world religions, maybe the best way we can share the gospel with the East is to recognize some truth of the Omega man. And, yes. and the, the incarnation was just mixing the created with the uncreated. And you mentioned the Alpha and Omega. I think that what he wrote in French was tout ce qui monte converge, everything that goes up converges, right? And then you also mentioned evolution. And these were the two seeds, I believe. This is why I say I think this was the genesis of all the heresies of the 20th century, because um, this notion that everything that goes up converges is essentially all world religions are really teaching the same thing. If you just scratch the surface, yes, everyone's making their way to heaven. This, this, I, I would say this grease the skids for Carl Rahner's anonymous Christian that anyone of goodwill is a Christian, whether they recognize it or not. In other words, you don't need grace to get to heaven. Exactly. It's just a reformulation of Pelagianism. Or grace is just sprinkled throughout matter. Sprinkled. And exactly. it's coming together. So you have your Buddhists. I mean, you read the documents of Vatican II and you get this vibe. It's very mm -hmm. Tehard. It's, it's very much. Yeah. It's, well, you know, the Buddhists have these elements, or what Bishop Barron calls the lesser lights in yeah, other exactly. religions, right? right? That's sort of this pixie dust that's sprinkled by God through the Logos in the beginning. And it's just over time, it's just sort of reassembling itself. And that's going to create, they would say, it is Catholicism, but it's an emergent Catholicism. That's right. Because if, if man can evolve, so can doctrine. It, and, and so Catholicism is going to, to evolve. This is why they also kind of, I think, were robbing from Cardinal Newman. They're the doctrine of development, they love that. Sure. And they keep pushing it towards an evolution of doctrine. So what's happening is all the world religions are all hanging out with eventually John Paul II and Assisi meetings. Mm -hmm. And it's like this convergence right. of all the magical logos pixie dust coming together, coming together. And what's going to 
come forth is the people of God. That's and it's, right. It's this ecumenical, <clears throat> generic understanding. And obviously, the Dalai Lama is not going to be doing transubstantiation. So that you sort of have to redefine spirituality. And, and that's that kind of gets to be Jesuit 101 religion course for high school students. That's right. And before you hit record the second time and before you hit even record <laughs> the first time, uh, we were talking off the air about a certain Jesuit who on, we'll just say, Sixth and Ninth Commandment sins actually believes, get this everybody out there listening, actually believes he has found a better way than St. Paul, who was against the LMNOP stuff, right? He yes. actually believes, now I have to hand it to him. I mean, I think it's satanically arrogant to think you have a better religion than, than what's in the Bible. But yes. I have to hand it to that Jesuit that at least he doesn't, he's not trying to twist St. Paul. He actually believes he's found a better religion. He wouldn't call it a new religion, but he believes he's found a side of the revelation of God's love on this issue of sixth and ninth commandment sins that Paul didn't understand. Now, to you and me, this sounds absolutely preposterous that he's diverted from the Bible. He admits it. He thinks he has yes. a better religion than the Bible. But you got to hand it to him that at least he's not doing eisegesis into the Bible. He's actually believing that there's a development of doctrine. And this is where you can take this back to Teilhard de Chardin, that if man can evolve to something higher, so also our doctrine can can evolve. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you're talking. We'll call him Slim Jim. You're talking about Slim Jim. But yeah, he it's it's, it's and real quick, Cardinal Newman had like ten parameters for development of doctrine, including conservative, tiny, slow, yes. in line with all these other things from the past. So if you read his essay on development of doctrine, he's very stringent on parameters to consider if it's a true or false right. development of doctrine. And, and and Cardinal Newman, when you read him on, and we it is debatable, but like on his development, it's more of a um, linguistic and philosophical clarification. So mm. like he would say, yes, homoousion is not in the New Testament mm -hmm. as a word. Same like Trinity. Yeah, but we take we does we take all these verses about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost and statements of Christ in the Gospels. And from there, we clarify that there are three persons and one divine substance, and they're all consubstantial. And so we have to bring about these developments to codify principles that are already present in the apostles. Yeah. That's different than what Slim Jim and certain Jesuits in America are doing, in which they're saying, we have emerged beyond, a, we have a better understanding than the apostles do. And you asked about the, I put this blog up today. I wasn't, I didn't yes. write this. I wrote this a week ago. I didn't know I was even flying to Dallas until a couple of days ago, but this is a great line that I uh, put in my blog from St. Vincent of Lerins. He wrote this around 445 AD. And I actually got this at the instigation of a Father Wiseman's podcast. And, but this was written originally by St. Vincent of Lerins. It says, what shall a Catholic do if some portion of the church detaches itself from the communion of the universal faith? What other choice can he make if some new contagion attempts to poison no longer a small part of the church, but the whole church at once? Then his great concern will be to attach himself to antiquity, which can no longer be led astray by any lying novelty. So what's amazing about that quote, he just entertained the possibility that a small contagion yes. could infect the whole church. Now, people in your and my past in the neocon world would look at us and be like, do you really think you two have like, would God really allow that? Well, St. Vincent entertained the possibility that a small group of people, a small group of heretics could infect the mind of most of the clergy. He entertained this possibility in the fifth century. This is why we're talking about Teilhard de Chardin forming 
most of the clergy. And, and, and a lot of people say, yeah. oh, well, the gates of hell will never destroy the church. How could you guys even say that? When, when, that's, not, that's not saying the same thing. It's not saying it's a fatal contagion. Exactly. But a contagion can infect the church. And it's not Arianism. That's right. Uh, as I always say to people, do you think an Athanasian priest in fourth century Turkey really cared what an Arian bishop thought about his paperwork? Yeah. No, he's going to do it. Exactly. But what's amazing about St. Vincent's line right there is he admitted there's a possibility a small contagion of heresy could infect the whole church at large, which is very similar to Arianism. And then he just gives a very simple way out of this, which is you attach yourself to antiquity. You, you attach yourself to tradition. This is why I called this blog post apostolic Catholicism, because traditional Catholicism isn't about, you know, what cigar you smoke or what <laughs> wax you put in your mustache or whatever it's about what did christ hand right. off to the apostle and see this and, is, and one of the, i yeah. i gotta commend you on that article you also go to padre pellegrino's uh website today because you say that when you say traditional catholicism a lot of people immediately say 1950s catholicism exactly. pre-vatican II catholicism yep. which is true mm -hmm. but it, it is a prejudice on both sides, I think, both with traditionalists and people yep. who don't like traditionalists. Yep. Oh, you know, the wives are going to be wearing uh, a certain mode of dress Denim and the men are around. going to be wearing a certain mode of no dress and the children jumpers. and all that. And well, no one wore denim jumpers in the fifties. Right, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah. but they, they, they all want to LARP live action role play the fifties. And by you kind of say, okay, well, let's, Let's kind of change. Let's do a thought experiment here. Let's just call it apostolic Catholicism. It's the same thing. Because it's not about being in a time warp to the 1930s or 1940s or 1950s. And see, this is why I actually still love Jesuits. What they were founded on is Ignatius reignited what was it like for Peter to follow Jesus? What was it like for Bartholomew to follow Jesus? That's why he had hundreds of thousands of men in that century taking the Ignatian exercises picturing what was it like and this is why he even guided them in the imagination through these spiritual exercises what would it have been like to be an apostle and this is what changed all these guys lives. in fact ignatius met francis xavier at university of paris xavier thought he was annoying wanted nothing to do with him <laughs> and he was hanging out with basically the frat boys he was high jump record holder in, at university wow. of paris he was basically a frat boy didn't want anything to do with this limping beggar who was 20 years older than him. Right. Finally ran out of money after his parting, asked Ignatius for some money. But when Francis Xavier took the 30-day silent retreat and pictured himself as one of the apostles at the foot of the cross wow. with the flames of hell licking him if he, if he actually wasn't living up, because he was actually studying to be a priest, just not a very good one. He didn't have any falls in chastity. In fact, his, his hagiographers were very clear. Francis Xavier died with no mortal sins against the sixth or ninth commandment, but he was a sloppy guy aiming just for, for vainglory in his priesthood. Mm. After this, after the, actually during the spiritual exercises, he had wrapped himself so tightly in rope for penance for his sins up to that point. Ignatius and the other guys thought he was going to die because he was, um, the ropes they found tied around him for penance and, and they all prayed to Our Lady. Our Lady saved him for the mission that he had to do. But wow. that was the penance he gave himself just for not even sexual sins, just sloppy sins. And this is the man who went on to baptize a half million people Incredible. in the Far East. But he, it came through a return to apostolic Catholicism, picturing himself as one of the apostles following Jesus. Yeah. So this is why my heart isn't for just a return to the 1950s. It's 
if we don't return to apostolic Catholicism, if we don't return to the articulated faith and morals of what Christ gave to the apostles, more souls will go to hell. And this is why St. Ignatius formed the Jesuits, wasn't just to have a cool militaristic setup of people obeying him randomly. Yeah. It was to save souls. And so anytime we traditionalists are told you're not obedient enough, we have to say, well, what's behind your call to obedience? Is it God's glory in the salvation of souls or is it changing the Catholic faith? Yes. Because if you're out to change the Catholic faith, I don't owe you any obedience. Sorry. Exactly. I'm out for God's glory and the salvation. Now, do I believe in the hierarchy? Do I believe Christ established the papacy? All the bi- Absolutely. I believe all of that. But again, obedience is at the service of the faith, not of obedience. Yeah. We're not Muslims. We don't believe That's right. a pope or bishop can tell you to fly an airplane into two buildings. Exactly. Or receive Holy Communion after a divorce and remarriage. Exactly. You can't do it. Nope. And, and as you're saying all that, I'm thinking the Jesuits were the missionaries, yeah. but they're also associated with the Counter-Reformation, Today's saint. which is preserving the faith exactly. against those who are trying to change the faith. I read in a book, I've never looked it up to confirm it, but I remember reading that when you were mentioning the University of Paris, mm-hmm. when Ignatius of Loyola was there, John Calvin was there at the mm-hmm. same time. Mm-hmm. And you think about, you know, next to Luther, John Calvin was the next big rep. That's right. Deformer, reformer. And to think here at the same place at University of Paris is you have Ignatius Loyola and, and future Jesuits, and then you have the Calvinist plague yeah. at the same place about to burst out. And in, in Ignatius Loyola provided, I mean, there were other orders as well, but the Jesuits just did such a fantastic job of refuting Protestant error. That's today's saint. Is, yes. is he was going all over the Netherlands, Germany, um, refuting Protestant error, making all these converts. Actually, funny thing about the University of Paris with John Calvin there, that's exactly why um, Ignatius of Loyola got taken to the Inquisition nine times because they were so jumpy about Calvin there, and then they heard all of his Ignatian meditations and the imagination. They thought it sounded a little bit Protestant, but here's the thing. He got cleared of the Inquisition nine times because he kept proving this was traditional Catholicism. It wasn't actually a novelty. And that's what's amazing about, you know, what I put in this blog that I wrote a week ago. St. Vincent of Larens calls heresy a new contagion. The funny thing is in the old divine office on today's Jesuit saint, St. Peter Canisius, it actually used in Latin the same term. Heresy is a contagion. Yes. And so the Jesuits were formed to spread the faith and to squash contagion. And what is, how did, how did St. Vincent of Larens and the Jesuits define heresy? As something new, yes. not as something old. It's something new. Now, what's amazing about modernism, though, is it is the reconglomeration, the synthesis of all old heresy. That's where, it's, that's where it's tricky for some people to recognize. But if you scratch the surface off of any modernist heresy, it really is just a rebubbling up of an old heresy. Yeah. I would even make the argument that ecumenism is Arianism because if oh, Jesus yeah, is talk just, about that. Well, because if Jesus is just the privileged route to heaven, mm. then he's actually not God. Now people would say, no, 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 but when a Buddha is saved, he's still saved by Jesus. But it's like, but really, if everybody's saved, we don't need a savior. Like, let's just be practically honest. If right. everybody's saved, you really don't need a savior. And if you don't need a savior, you can never objectively empty the cross of all its power, but you're subjectively emptying the cross of its power meaning Jesus wasn't God, meaning you're an Arian. If Jesus is right. just the privileged way, I'm sorry, but you're an Arian. Yeah. That he isn't God. You know, practically speaking. Some people have stated that one reason why Arianism became 
it was a bad doctrine. But at that time, after Constantine had become a Christian and his sons inherited that power, and there was this interface between the church and the state, one reason why his son Constantius II was a ardent Arianin, Arian is that by denying the divinity of Jesus, you are denying the role of the church and society. Because if you think of the state as the natural, the human, mm -hmm. and you think of the church as a divine, like the divine nature of Christ, and there's, an, there's a perfect hypostatic union of the divine nature and the human nature, you could see if you were politically minded and you were Machiavellian, you would say, man, if we allow Christ and say he is fully divine, that means that the, that the church is superior to the state. Oh, gotcha. And if you are a power-hungry emperor who wants to keep as much power as possible, you're going to want to push this, the church down. And the Arians all did that. The Arians were, were Arians tended to be pro-empire and anti-church, if you look at the history books. Interesting. So there, there's this political element as well. And, and as you were saying, ecumenism is kind of an ancient Aryan. That's what popped in my mind. What do modernists and globalists want? They want to push the church out and they want to exalt the state. That's right. Statism. So that would be another parallel between Arianism and modern ecumenism. And what's amazing is that they're, they're not squashing the church, they're using it. And that's where Vigano is using even stronger language now than he was a few months ago. Now, now he's saying the Vatican apparatus is the servant of the new world order. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty strong language Yeah, to say it's the servant of the new world order. But that's that's not the state squashing the church. That's the that's the state, a globalist state, according to Vigano, actually, um, like being a parasite that hosts upon the church too. And here's here's this big O word. And if you're not following that, you're disobedient. Yes. And then we Catholics who are programmed to obedience were like, oh, I don't want to be disobedient. But something seems to be wrong in the chanceries in the Vatican. Ah, oh, but I don't want to be disobedient. Right. And this is where Ignatius of Loyola, I think if he were alive today, he would point out that St. Thomas Aquinas shows that divine law is ahead of ecclesial law, and ecclesial law is ahead of particular law. This is where yeah. we have to get these laws in order, because people like you and me aren't disobedient. We're saying, wait a minute, what is the competency, competency of the hierarchy? Can they change articulated faith and morals? Right. No. And if they try to, we have to realize divine law and natural law are always above ecclesial law and ecclesial law is above particular law. Exactly. And this is where we really have to study this so we don't get accused of disobedience. Yeah. And if you think back to Spain, you know, I love your your analysis of they're fighting the Muslims, so they have to have this top-down top hierarchy of mandate and obedience. But then when you think about Islam and why Islam was attractive to Arabs, North Africans, and Honestly, it made its way into Spain, not sure. just randomly. There was people who wanted to be Muslim. Yeah. Islam is is Arianism, mm. fundamentally. It, it teaches that Jesus is just a man. Prophet, but but not God. Yeah, mm -hmm. prophet, but not priest, not divine. Mm -hmm. And what is Islam? Islam is statism, mm. you know? And I think there's there's those analogies as well. It's It's, it's kind of ironic that the Spanish... Catholic genius in order to overcome Islamic statism and Islamic Arianism 
in a way overextends itself to flip around on the other side of the coin in our time with that nominalism. Yes. With nominalism. Yeah. yeah. And that's where it's such a sneaky trick of Satan mm -hmm. to actually take, Hey, turn off your brain and be obedient to the level of what we see in the church right now. But in yeah. some sense, it could only come through this sense of if what you think is black is white or what, if you think is black, the church says is white, you just have to obey. Right. Ignatius would not be okay with that in the sense that he would say, not what a certain person in the church said, what the church has always said. Right. And that's why he's, he, in fact, in that line, he calls it the magisterium of Holy Mother Church. And he does add the word hierarchical after that. But if you look at those words, Holy Mother Church, he means the perennial constant teachings of the church. Yes. Not what Our Lady of Fatima probably said was the third secret, which was apostasy from the top down. This is where only right. Fatima is going to really say, really answer for us, why is obedience in the 21st century different from the 16th century? Not because God changed his mind, but because there would be a new level of crisis in the church. Right. Can we say that obedience in our time is the same in the 16th century and in the 8th century and the 1st century, but the distinction is a person cannot obey heresy. I think that's or right. sin. Mm -hmm. So it's the same thing in a, in a family. If I tell my kids, yeah, we're becoming Lutheran, but dad, you've always said, pray the rosary and go to mass. Well, you're going to Lutheran church this Sunday. Um, they would have to resist me. They would have to disobey me, mm -hmm. but they're obeying the faith that was there. Yeah. Um, so nothing about the virtue of obedience ever changed in our home or even in my kids. What happened is, is a message got changed, but they're still obeying the hierarchy of obedience. Yes. And I think that's, I, I, I just don't want someone hearing our conversation saying, well, in 2023, obedience changed. No. It's what happened is, is people above us uh, pushed error, sin, and or heresy, and we just say we can't have it. Can't follow that. Yeah. The analogy I give, imagine the Apostle James, first century Jerusalem. Let's say he has a niece who's thinking of going from Judaism to Christianity. Mm -hmm. She's talking to the rest of the, to the family about this. I don't know. I mean, it seems like Rabbi Jesus rose from the dead. I know my Uncle James, some of you guys think he was a little crazy following him all the way, but I, I'm thinking of being baptized and then the rest of the family jumps in and is like, do you really think Adonai <laughs> right. would allow the entire Pharisees and Sadducees of the religion? Do you really think that he founded Judaism? Yes, yes, I do. Do you really think he would allow all the Pharisees and the Sadducees to fall by the wayside, fail to recognize the Messiah, and just your one crazy uncle, James, is the one with the faith, and he's telling you if you're not baptized, you're not going to be saved? Yep. What's the outcome of that? If she's not baptized, she's not saved. Yes. She has to she has to follow the truth more than a hierarchy that's diverted from the truth. Now, other listeners listen, I, listen to this might say, well, that sounds like a Luther argument. Luther would have followed Jesus, but not the hierarchy. But hold on. My rebuttal to that is who's maintaining the constant magisterium in the Catholic Church today? Is it the traditional Catholics who are called heretics or schismatics? Or is it the others? And that's how you tell who's a, 
who's a schismatic and who's a heretic is once again, St. Vincent of, of Lerins tells us, in a time of great confusion, you cling to antiquity. You don't say God changed yes. his mind. You don't say, well, the, the new mass is older than the old mass. You just don't know. I mean, you don't even right. have to study theology to know that sentence <laughs> doesn't even make sense in English. The right. new mass is older than the old mass. You just yes. don't know it. Yeah. Give me a break. Yeah, they've been floating that one out more often, but it's yeah, more and more. It, we've 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 been refuting it. It's 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 just not the case. Um, the Jesuits are in decline. If you look at their numbers, they're in. I think of the orders, they're in the fastest decline, and they were pretty big. Uh, I don't they I don't think they were ever reached the size of the Franciscans, but they were definitely bigger than the Dominicans. Okay. I thought they may have gotten bigger, but then the Franciscans, Maybe they did. but Franciscans and Jesuits must have been the two biggest. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, they were huge and their numbers, if you look at how fast they're dying and how little they're getting new Jesuits, and I wish I had the actual numbers in front of me, but I've done the numbers. And then you just take the SSPX, who everyone says is irregular, stay away mm -hmm. from all that. But if you look at them, I think the, if you just take the plot lines of decline and growth, I believe the SSPX is scheduled to surpass the Jesuits in numbers by 2030. Wow. So that's in seven years. Amazing. And you just, it, it, in a way, that's just so sad that the Jesuits who have had a 500-year run and have been around the globe many times would be surpassed by a little outlaw group that was founded in 1970. Yeah. And I, I think this, and I don't want to go into a whole SSPX debate now. Um, and I, I'm a member of the fraternity of St. Peter. People always ask me about that. Um, but it kind of shows, especially in the hearts of young men, the Holy spirit grows, gives life as Christ says in John's gospel where there is love mm. and where there's obedience. And I'm not trying to say all Jesuits don't love God, but their order is off track. And if you don't see vocations, that's a sign. And there's a lot of self-selecting going on in the Jesuits. I mean, they're still my favorite religious order. I shouldn't say still. In, in all of history, they were my favorite order. But I mentioned I graduated Boston College, and um, my roommate and best friend went to join the Jesuits um, uh, after we graduated uh, college. And... At one point, he was, he was an Orthodox dude, and he was in formation at the Jesuits at one point, and he got in a little bit of a debate with one of his formators, like a class on one of the initial classes of formation. So there was like 10 or 12 guys in this class, the Jesuit teachers there, and the teacher says something against the Catholic faith, and my friend, he, he quotes, he doesn't quote the the catechism, I'm doing a series on Roman Catechism of Trent. He quotes Pope John Paul II's 1993 catechism, mm -hmm. opens it, and gently tries to stand up against his formator, who says, I'll just be honest, I don't like that book. Right. So this Jesuit formator finds the new catechism made in 1993 way too conservative for him. But at least, once again, <laughs> at least he was honest. Like a lot, you know, in diocesan seminary, they're not going to be honest. I at least commend right. him for just saying, I just don't even believe in the catechism or the Bible anymore. Right. And this was one of the key aspects why my buddy left. He got married. He's got kids now. And I'm, I'm certainly glad he left the Jesuits and got married. But you ask about the numbers declining. A straight man's not going to want to stay in the Jesuits if he's not even allowed to quote 
the new catechism, much less the old catechism. Exactly. So they're self-selecting themselves to death. Right. And is, I guess, the only hope would be for there to be a leadership change, but I just don't see that happening. The Black Pope, I mean, yeah, they've, that's, you know, in the 80s, it was a rupe. It's, uh, there's going to have to, but this is the thing, the whole church at large, this is why we pray every day for the triumph of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, the total restoration of the Catholic Church, because it's not just the Jesuits who are modernists. Pretty right. much every, every yeah. order has to return to tradition if, if we're going to save souls yeah. again. And, and we've seen traditional Benedictines that are doing great right now. There's even traditional Franciscans. There's even transis, uh, tradition. I'm saying trans, uh, traditional. There's traditional Benedictines. There's traditional Franciscans. There's even some traditional Dominicans. Um, there's no traditional Jesuit. I know there are Jesuits who say the Latin Mass. We know mm -hmm. who they are. Yeah. Um, but there is no group of them. It seems that they're sort of scattered and silenced. And I can't remember if this was our first go at this podcast or the second, but I mentioned, you know, the Legionnaires of Christ. They thought they were going to be the new, the new Jesuits. But again, without opening the uh, SSPX can of worms, in some sense, the SSPX is the new Jesuits in the sense, like, see, six, seven years ago when I started doing the Latin Mass, I was calling them names like schismatic and stuff. Too. Yeah. yeah me but too. then when someone gave me the, the biography, the, the video of Archbishop Lefebvre, and I saw, wait a minute, this wasn't a delicate guy with white gloves all day are <laughs> looking for a fight with the Pope. This was a hardcore African missionary. Yes. That's what started to change my mind. When I actually watched the biography of Archbishop Lefebvre, I thought, okay, this is an international missionary out for the salvation of souls, living charity. This really does seem to reflect the life of someone like St. Francis Xavier or St. Ignatius of Loyola. That's an interesting, I've never thought of Marcel Lefebvre as like and Ignatius Loyola, but there is there there is the missionary element and there is the doctrinal element, and that's one thing that that I didn't kind of the same thing as you. I thought, well, Lefebvre, he was probably like obsessed with liturgy. Mm -hmm. No, no, I mean he's actually not, and 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 it's kind of interesting as I've gotten to know priests from the Institute of Christ the King and Fraternity of Saint Peter and Society of Saint Pius X. The Society of Saint Pius X are the least concerned or impressed with liturgical things even in tradition missionaries end up the sloppiest in literature yeah, exactly. <laughs> whether it's the jesuits yeah. before vatican ii yeah. or SSP, like, the, the missionaries always end up the right. sloppy Maybe, i shouldn't say sloppiest they end up with the most minimal amount of accoutrements and decor decor yes um because of how much they have to travel right often there's low masses yes um yeah now i i disagree with these terms like He's as inept as a Jesuit in Holy Week. I want to say, no, no, no. You mean as in Jesuit, as inept as a Jesuit in Holy Week after Vatican II. Or people right. say, he's as inept as a Franciscan at Holy Week. I want to be like, no, no, no. You mean as inept as a Franciscan after Vatican II. Right. That's, the order is not the variable. Yes. But there is a little bit of a truth that um, the missionary orders kind of had to wing it at times. They didn't mean they winged it on, on like changing the mass. But if the vestments weren't as nice as the ICKs, they could still go to mass. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know, uh, there's all this controversy now about SSPX and FSSP and, you know, talk people, Father Bizig and Lefebvre and all mm -hmm. that. And I once got to have lunch with Father Bizig at the, uh, in Nebraska. This was a long time ago, uh, maybe almost 10 years ago, nine, 10 years ago. And back then I was very anti Marcel Lefebvre. I was mm -hmm. going to Latin mass obviously, but I was very anti 
Lefebvre and very anti-SSPX, but fascinated by it. And I had lunch with Father Bizzik, and I was just peppering him with questions, trying to learn, because Father Bizzik was close to him and for all those years. And he was answering a lot of my questions. And at a certain point, he kind of just stopped me. He's like, you know, for you to fully understand Marcel Lefebvre, you have to understand that he's a missionary. Mm. And he his primary concern as a priest, as a bishop, was the salvation of souls. And when you've been trained that way and you've exercised your entire priest, not your entire, most of your priesthood and your episcopate that way, um, he didn't, I don't think he said it this way, but this is how I remember it. Dotting your I's and crossing your T's on everything canonical is lower on the list. Yeah. And he's like, if you understand that about him and his personality, you understand him. Now, obviously, Father Bizzig didn't approve of all of that. And mm-hmm. that's why the fraternity of St. Peter exists. Sure. Okay. So he wasn't, he was in a way he was not defending him, but he was giving an account for him. But what's strange is, is since I had lunch with him 10 years ago, we have become, it seems we have become more and more in a uh, crisis of emergency or mm. more and more in a missionary era Yeah. 10 years since then. And so I think over time as I, I think also seeing the uh, Lefebvre documentary that you mentioned and then reading Tissier's book and seeing him as a man and realizing that ultimately for him, it was a defense of the faith and the salvation of souls. Like flying all over the world is difficult for an old man. Right. Um, but he's trying to defend and hold something that's always been, that can't change. That's awesome. That's good. And I've never in my entire life ever associated him with Ignatius of Loyola, but I can now see that connection. I'm not, yeah. we're not trying to say that. Mm-hmm. They're the new Jesuits or he's the new Ignatius, but I can see that connection. And, um, and I think yeah, it's it, fascinating. You know, someone told me uh, they had seen a show on EWT and I can't actually confirm or deny this, but it sounds about right. A friend was telling me that when they had the, uh, um, what's the person who tries to disprove someone who was a, a saint? Devil's the, advocate. Devil's advocate. When they, when the devil's advocate was called to Ignatius of Loyola's canonization after he was dead, they just dismissed it because everyone all over Europe knew he had grievously broken all Ten Commandments with numerous mortal sins before his conversion. Before his conversion. Yes. They just got rid of it. And I think someone like him who had led such a horrible life, whether that story is true or not, everybody knows he'd lived a pretty horrible life. Mm-hmm. Then he meditates on hell, almost commits suicide in the cave of Manresa because he just doesn't know how he could be forgiven. Wow. Then God gives him these interior lights, infuses the entire Catholic faith into him at, at this river next to Manresa. And he sees that if someone like him is being saved from the hell he's meditated on, everything comes down to the salvation of souls. Yes. And this is why he founded arguably the greatest missionary order is because he saw hell in his own life. He saw the divine mercy of Jesus. He saw what could be brought. And when he lit up people like Francis Xavier to say, go light the whole world on fire, none of these guys believe Jesus was a way, a truth, a right. life. They all believe Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life. And yes. this is this was very similar in the life of Archbishop Lefebvre. And this stands at total odds with modernist ecumenism, right? And so this is this is where salvation of souls really comes down to our discussion today and the missionary life is, is Jesus the way and the truth and the life, or is ecumenism the way? Yes. Now people will say, no, 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 but in ecumenism, people are still saved by Jesus. 
you can play loophole games like that, but practically you're not holding that if you're holding to ecumenism. Exactly. Did Jesus die to save us from hell and establish the Catholic Church, or should we go worship at the family center of Abu Dhabi that you talked about yesterday? Because exactly. if Jesus isn't God, if we can hang our hats on Arianism, then you can go to any of those three houses in Abu Dhabi and be saved. What do you think Ignatius of Loyola? You know what Francis Xavier <laughs> did in India? He went in to Hindu temples and knocked down their idols. That's what the first Jesuits did. Yeah. Now, he, was gain he also gained advance because when they were about to kill him, he raised the dead in the whole town because the miracle became Catholic. So we don't have those miracles happening. But that's what the initial Jesuits thought of idols. Yes. What do our current Jesuits think of mm, idols? They bring them right on in. Bring them on in. Pachamama. So, Pachamama versus Francis Xavier. Yeah. Big difference. Yeah. And, and think about if you held what a modern, modernist ecumenical priest or bishop holds now. God has sprinkled the grace of pixie dust all throughout the universe. And there's the lesser lights that Bishop Barron talks about. The, Jesus is only the privileged way, not the mm -hmm. way. Would you, if you were Francis Xavier, would you really get on a boat and go all the way around the world and then die on a beach in China? Exactly. With the goal to baptize people, Bapti baptism. Unless you are born of water and the Holy Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. It wasn't this anonymous Christianity. It wasn't like, dare we hope that all men be saved, right. or this very loose, implicit baptism by desire. Like, well, he once had a good thought. That counts for <laughs> baptism. Right. Um, the Karl Rahner, Hans Kuhn version of all this stuff. They believed there are children, men, and women in Indonesia, India, China, Japan, and they need the waters of baptism. That's right. And I have a hand. I'm going to use it. And I'm going to go, and I'm going to preach and baptize. And same with all the Jesuits who came to North America. That's right. And Archbishop Lefebvre, he didn't believe every non-Catholic absolutely went to hell, but he was very clear if a non-Catholic ever was saved, it was never by their false See, religion. I don't like that language. It's, it's more liberal than most Well, I, I, yeah. I say only Catholics go to heaven. I see where you're going. And they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Well, if they made it to heaven before they died, they became a Catholic. Through perfect contrition or something? Yeah. Yeah. Through grace. Some, yeah. some sanctifying grace. And look, I think would agree very, that. I just mean, yeah, I know he, I know he would, but I just... Though. Yeah, I just if we, I, I'm just very careful if we say, well, if any non-Catholic ever made You're it, right. heaven, just, no, 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 no. Right. Uh, you, if you made it to heaven, you were, you are, yeah, a Catholic. You are a Christian. But I was just going to tie that in. Why the traditional orders are growing so much? Because if you're not saving souls, why in the world would you be celibate? Why would you give exactly. up a family? What a horrible life. Yeah. Well, that's why they wink, wink, and nod, nod exactly. at, at LMNOP. I have a whole theory why universalism is attached to that lifestyle in exactly. the priesthood. Exactly. You're, if you're gonna go and have have fun on uh, on your sabbatical every year, yeah, um, with your buddies, yeah, exactly. it makes sense. And if everyone's saved, this is a this is an easy way to hide your lifestyle, exactly. and you're not afraid of hell. Exactly. So and you're out. and you're getting to do social justice and feel good mm -hmm. about yourself. Exactly. And there it is. So do you want to take some questions? Sure. Got maybe we'll do maybe five or ten minutes of questions. If you guys have a, a question or a comment, um, 
put it in here into the live chat. There's a, there's a thousand of us here in the live chat, so that's fun. And then I'll direct the questions to, to Father David Nix. And um, we'll take them if you way. want. I'll, I mean, I'll answer some. Yeah, yeah. You can answer so some. So lots of people are excited about us affirming extra ecclesia nola salus, which is Latin, outside the church. There is no salvation. Um, we've compared before, if, if Catholicism and Christ is the privileged way, not the only way, that's the idea of you get on an airplane, but you get to board first. You get two bags instead of one, and you get to sit in first class. You get a hot towel, and you get some snacks. And then all the Hindus and the Buddhists, they get to sit in the back. you know. But they're all getting there yeah, because they're following the lesser lights. That's such a cheapening of, of true Catholicism. Yeah. All right. What are some good? Oh, wait, I have something to add. Yep, on go that. ahead. I think a lot of people, though, even trads, when they hear extra clays and new salus, people tend to think, like, imagine this ocean liner. Jesus is walking the ocean liner, checking to see if you're a card-carrying Catholic yeah. and tickets, throwing you out tickets. if you're not. Yeah. This is how I reframe this for people. We really don't understand how serious original sin is. Rather, we're all in the drink, and Jesus is throwing us life preservers mm -hmm. to bring us into the boat, which is the church. We are all right. separated from God. When you realize this isn't about culture or card-carrying Catholic, but that we are born separated from God and Jesus desperately wants to be all of our saviors, yes. then you don't look at it through the eyes of God likes Catholics and he's a meanie to Buddhists exactly. or something like that. You know? And, and, and St. Thomas Aquinas puts it in the most non-scary way possible. He just says, natural goodness is not sufficient to reach heaven because it's a supernatural goal. Therefore, to reach a supernatural goal, you need supernatural grace, which comes through the sacraments. It's exactly. really basic stuff. It's, it not, it's not that I know more nice Buddhists than I know Catholics who are all mean. It's that we need grace to get to heaven because it's a supernatural goal. A natural, it doesn't matter how many times you work in a soup kitchen, natural goodness will not bring you to a supernatural goal. Yes. Amen. And it's like he's constantly throwing ropes out for people to come aboard. And then what's crazy is there's people aboard and they, when they commit mortal sin, they're just jumping back in the ocean. Mm -hmm. And he's having to tell people, hey, throw that guy a life raft, which is the priest saying, you got to hear these confessions for these people. It's not just like people are coming aboard, they're jumping off again. Yeah. And you know, I learned French, Spanish, and Portuguese because all I wanted to be was a missionary. Eight years ago, you and I, all we wanted to do was evangelize. Now you and I have to go run up to the captain's deck and say, why are there crazy people in charge? Because we <laughs> never we never wanted to be involved in church reform. I learned French, Spanish, and Portuguese yeah. to go into the jungle. But we have to now say, wait a minute, if this ship is, now we know the ship can't ultimately go down, but if there's crazy people steering in the wrong direction, yeah. that's why I'm more involved now in church reform than walking across Brazil. Exactly. Um Someone asks, uh, Joey Pang Para says, what are some good devotions and novenas um, to a parish's guardian angel, not just mm -hmm. a person's guardian angel? I, mm -hmm. I've never seen any devotions to a parish guardian angel, though I yeah. think it is taught yeah, that there right. is a, a guardian angel of each parish. I had heard that and only listened to Father Ripperger recently did I realize, um, I, th I think I knew parishes had, I knew states and cities had guardian angels, but uh recent talk by Father Ripperger, I didn't realize that... Um, families may be given guardian angels too. That's really, on top of the normal guardian angel, families may be given a guardian angel. But I've never seen a devotion, Joey. So. Yeah, I've heard Father Ripperger, and I think I've read it that some speculated that when a man and a woman get married, an oh, angel is yeah. appointed to that 
family. So it'll be for the man, the woman, and the kids. Beautiful. I mean, if if each nuclear family is its own political state, mm-hmm. it would seem that there might be that. Yeah. It's an interesting idea. A lot of these things we don't know because God didn't tell us. Um, why is it that Jesuits are so orthodox or so heretical? It's a question. Why? Yeah. What pushes them? Is it just the Spanish genius of it or is there something more? Kind of like what I said at the beginning. I mean, they're just really good at what they do. And they're either going to go hardcore into orthodoxy or hardcore into heresy. Um, the heresy, they can get away with it because it's just blessed. Um, I mean, there, there's, there's a self-promotion of heretics in the Jesuits that's a little more open. I know I just got done saying all, all these orders that follow modernism are yes. really bad. But it's a, it's more openly accepted in the Jesuits than mm-hmm. than a lot of other congregations. Good, and the Orthodox ones like Father Fessio again, he's not even a traditionalist. Just even being a conservative Novus Ordo priest gets sent to like hospital ministry or whatever. Yep, so exactly, you know. Um, someone asks, what about the dogma of invincible ignorance? Does invin- is invincible ignorance sacramental, Father? It's a good yeah. <laughs> Well, even the new catechism delineates between vincible and invincible ignorance. So let's, you know, Pope Pius IX said, he actually used the, the boat analogy I just did, mm-hmm. um, that outside of this, this arc of the Catholic Church, no one can be saved. Um, those who through no fault of their own do not know of the Catholic Church are not therefore guilty in the eyes of the Lord. He means not as guilty. Now notice he didn't say are automatically saved. Exactly. He's talking about reduced culpability. This is Pope Pius IX. And the New Catechism, to its credit, uses very similar language. Those who through no fault of their own do not know the fullness of the Catholic faith. It's, it's a slightly different from Pope Pius IX in the 19th century. But even the New Catechism delineates between invincible ignorance and vincible ignorance. Okay, what's the difference between those two? Vincible ignorance means you had the internet at your fingertips. You could have Googled is this, 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 or this mm-hmm. immortal sin. You could have Googled right. what the church has always taught, but you were too lazy to do it, and you chose not to figure out the truth. Invincible ignorance means you're a pygmy born in Papua New Guinea and you never had a chance to meet a mission. Now, that doesn't mean too many Catholics are like, well, therefore he's saved because he never met it. So it's like, wait a minute. So not meeting a missionary automatically makes your... No, that's not how it works. That's not how it works. But you do have invincible ignorance if you never had a chance to learn the Catholic faith. It doesn't mean you're saved. It just is a little mark in the direction of reduced culpability. It's an additional mark in the the movement of, of, of... And so St. Thomas Aquinas actually talks about um, implicit and explicit desire for the faith. And, yes. and, and one of the, the two things, if I remember correctly, in the Summa is you, you have to have an, uh, a desire, an understanding of what's on the human heart and belief in divine providence. And the second one's fascinating. Thomas Aquinas says um, a belief in the need for a redeemer of mankind. Yes. I was thinking That's about like that. That's yeah. like the bare minimum of, of implicit That's right. desire for baptism is what Thomas Aquinas calls it. And if you've never heard of baptism, how can you do it? Right. Why does he say that you know mankind needs a redeemer? I think it's because you have to be humble enough to know, you're, even if you're a pygmy in Papua New Guinea, yeah. you have to know somehow deep inside, even if you've never heard of the gospel, you're not cutting it on your own. Yeah. You, you, need, need you need a redeemer. You need a, a, a priest. Yeah, so many people, I mean, you just think, okay, there's this person in South America 100 years before Christ, and let's say they're like a violent murderer and a cannibal, um, and they've never heard of Jesus. Because they have invincible ignorance, are they saved? And the answer is no. Right. 
right? And so invincible ignorance is never just a carte blanche ticket to heaven. And I think a lot of people think, well, if you have invincible ignorance, that's just as good as baptism. And that is not the teaching. Nope. Or Francis Xavier yep. would not have gone all the way across the world to tell all these invincible, these, well, I guess they weren't invincible because they converted, but these ignorant people about the gospel. That's right. And Francis, I mean, I'm not a Feniite, so I'm not saying this in support of that, but Francis Xavier yeah. really does seem to think anyone he didn't baptize was going to go to hell. And like, I'm not saying that's absolutely what I believe, but it's kind of interesting. Like God gave well, him in the, the ordinary gift of, means of salvation. That is it true. Is. And God gave him the gift of raising the dead, not me. So yeah. it's like, <laughs> okay, maybe this guy wasn't so far from the truth. If yeah. he believes that and God's given him the gift of raising the dead. Yeah. So we, we've greatly underestimated the teaching that, ba that baptism is necessary yeah. for salvation. And, and when it comes to desire for baptism, Thomas Aquinas says explicit and implicit. And I think we should explain that to people because it'll yeah. help him. So explicit bap uh, desire for baptism is you've been a catechumen, you know, maybe it's two weeks to Easter mm -hmm. and you're like, I just can't wait to get baptized. I've been loving these courses. You know, I've memorized the creed. I'm learning the Our Father and the Ten Commandments. And you're like, man, just two weeks to go. And then you get a heart attack. Right. So this is a person who has explicitly stated to the church, the priest, his friends, his godfather, I want to be baptized and I can't wait for it to happen. And he dies ahead of time. So like St. Ambrose of Milan preached a sermon for such a catechumen saying he's going to make it. And you're not talking about the people who die in martyrdom before, because that's baptism by blood. You're talking about yeah, non-martyrdom before. Just had a heart attack. Yep. You know, and so, but then Thomas Aquinas says, and this gets controversial. It's amazing that Thomas Aquinas in 1200 taught this, because mm -hmm. he says there's implicit desire for baptism, and that can be yes. different ranges. So let's say um, a Jesuit, arrives in Indonesia and he's preaching through the apostles creed. It's week one. And there's a woman there and she's like, this is amazing. You know, this makes so much more sense than my ancestral gods or whatever. And she's like, I, this is what I, I can't wait to learn more. I'm coming back tomorrow. And then she has a heart attack. Yeah. Right. So she's already consenting to, there is one God, Jesus Christ, born of a virgin. He, she, they just, she hadn't got to one church won baptism for the remission of sins. Thomas Aquinas would say, since she was accepting the message of the missionary and mm. the gospel that she received, if it had been posed to her, and if you believe this, get this water ritual done to you called baptism for the remission of sins, she would have 100% gone with yep. it. So implicitly in her desire to serve Jesus was the fulfillment of that mandate. Okay. That's implicit. What gets crazy is, is before and after Vatican II, they begin to stretch that so far that it's a, were you nice to someone today? Exactly. Well, being nice to someone is being gracious and baptism gives you grace. And so that's an implicit desire exactly. for baptism. And so you've kind of lost all touch or all connection between hearing and receiving the gospel or even the bare minimum, like you said, mm -hmm. that God exists and there's a redeemer yeah. to positive sentimentality in a person. And it collapses grace on nature. Exactly. As soon as you're a good person, well, that is grace. And that and that's what Rahner and these guys do is exactly. collapse grace on nature. Now, some people would listen to this and they would say, well, what's the point of pagans even living a good life if they're going to go to hell if they don't meet a missionary? Well, if you look at the history of Native American conversions, most tribes had very minimal conversions. 
But there's a tribe in northwest Montana. I think they were called the Flatheads. Yes, the Flatheads. Have you heard of them? Yes. They were. They only had one wife. Um, they believed in only one God. Mm -hmm. They were actually following natural law decently well yes. before the Jesuits came in. So the Jesuits come in and they find, okay, they're sinful people, but they're actually decently following natural law. One wife, only believe in one God. The conversion rate was, I think, over 90%. Yes. Because that's what's amazing. When you're actually living natural law, you do have this sense you need a redeemer even more. And so when the Jesuits yes. showed up, they actually wanted baptism. Yeah. I was talking about this the other night with my son Beckett, who you met yesterday. Uh, he was like, okay, so you get sanctifying grace when you're baptized. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you have mortal sin, confession, you get sanctifying grace, you increase it the sacrament. But what about before you're baptized? Is there no grace? And I was like, well, you don't have sanctifying grace in your soul, but you have what's called provenient grace. And provenient grace is not a habit of the soul, but it is it is God's activity on you yes. that's making you click on the internet and sit, learn about Catholicism yes. or go talk to a priest or call your Catholic friend or maybe pick up a Bible. Like God is giving you provenient graces that are preparing you. Thomas calls it preambula fidei. Mm, the preamble to the, the faith. But preamble is in Latin, walking before. It's beautiful. So you have provenient grace and preambles of faith that is all God's preparation for this explosion of grace in your life through baptism. Amazing. And those flathead Indians, Native Americans, they the preambles of grace and the prevenient grace was strong with them. So they were yes. they were corresponding with prevenient grace. So when the missionaries came with baptism, 90%. And we as Catholics believe, even if someone's not in sanctifying grace, that's probably most of the world, either original sin or mortal sin, God is still giving actual graces, not sanctifying grace unless you have baptism or perfect contrition or confession, but actual graces are flowing into the lives of those not in sanctifying grace all the time. Yeah. Not, not saying it's not to be saved, but it's moving you towards salvation. That's what's so dangerous about rejecting those actual graces. If yes. you're not baptized or if you're in mortal sin is God is still drawing you to himself. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that can be true, of course, of individuals, but it's also can be true of communities. Mm, never thought of it that way. Yeah. Like, I think there are certain families who are not yet Catholic, but may be predisposed by provenient grace. They're moving there. Yeah. And then they become, you see that in the book of Acts. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we should, um, we need to get going ourselves to the filming of Ooh. Cabrini. So I think we'll stop there and... Um, just exhort everyone to pray the rosary every day, go to confession, find a traditional Latin mass, um, and then anything else you want to exhort people on this feast day of a Jesuit? Just keep to apostolic Catholicism. That's the one faith handed over. There's only one faith, one Lord, one God, one baptism, as Paul writes, and hold to that. And the best way to, uh, to see that is the daily rosary. For some reason, mm -hmm. Um, you know, Mary so magnifies the Lord, but God also magnifies the way of Mary as the yeah. safest way doctrinally. That's why the rosary seems to be the, the very strongest way to protect yourself against heresy. Um, they're the goggles on all of church history yeah. if you pray that daily rosary. Yeah. Very good. All right. Well, Father, will you um, give us a final sure. prayer and a blessing? Dominus Fobiscum. Et cum spiritu tuo. Benedictio Deimnipotentis, Patris et Filii, et Spiritus Sancti. Descended super vos, et maniat semper. Amen. Amen. Thanks for having me, Dr. Marshall. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. All right, everyone. Thanks for watching. And uh, today's epistle was 
Salt of the world. Salt of the world. No, so, uh, the gospel salt of the world. The epistle oh, yeah, the was gospel. the itchy ears on yeah, heresy. Itchy ears, but yeah, the gospel was salt of the world today. Yes. So um, our Lord Jesus Christ says you're the light of the world and the salt of the earth. So go out there and be salty. God bless. Thank God you. Bless. Thanks. All right.